Turn to Daniel chapter 7. As we roll into the second half of the book of Daniel, you're going to see why I said in the introduction to this book, uh, without the book of Daniel, it, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for us to actually interpret the book of Revelation Uh, without just a direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the interpreter of Scripture anyway, but the book of Daniel just sets so many things in their perspective for us. And that is absolutely true with the rest of chapter 7, which we'll tackle tonight. Um, Before we dig into the Word, I want to remind you next Sunday night, uh, you're going to be sitting in the middle uh, of a performance, the final performance of our uh, Christmas program. So tomorrow, or next Sunday night, we won't be having our regular study in Daniel. Uh, we'll be doing what will be our fourth uh, installment of Christmas in Bethlehem, the tale of the innkeeper. So just remind yourself of that. So if you show up and things look a little different next Sunday, uh, you'll know why. Amen. Daniel begins now as he steps into this vision that he's received from the Lord. And we'll pick up in verse 13 here of chapter 7. And he says, what I believe is the most direct and absolutely conclusive evidence of Jesus relating to a passage in the Old Testament that is found anywhere in the New Testament. He's going to use this name, the Son of Man. And it will be this name that Jesus uses in the face of the Pharisees. He says, it is as you say, I am, first using the name that Moses got, and then the Son of God. He's going to use this name to describe himself. So Jesus himself puts the stamp on this name in verse 13 that Daniel, in this vision, is seeing Jesus and uses a very specific name. How many of you have maybe on your Christmas tree or a Christmas card, uh, this time of year we use very frequently the name Emmanuel, amen? Or Emmanuel. It means God with us. That name actually refers also to this chapter. This is the son of man. It ties in directly to a song that we sung this morning. It ties into Daniel chapter 9 and verse 6. And there it says that he is the child who was born and the son who was given. Jesus is the son of man in our passage tonight. And so let's pray and we'll dig in here at verse 13. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, reaching back from the time that you, Jesus, walked on this earth some 600 years to the time of Daniel and to know that Daniel saw a vision of heaven. He saw you. He saw the events that will Unfold still later in our timeline, in our history, this Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. God, we pray that you would speak to us and encourage us tonight that your word is true. 
that what you've said in it is trustworthy. And so, Lord, we give you tonight. Pray that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 13, Daniel 7. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancients of, ancient of days. And I want you to notice something here because it's really important for those that are the Trinity doubters that God does indeed exist in three persons and they are described as individual persons in Scripture and yet the attributes of God assigned to each. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him, that would be the son of man, near before him, that would be the ancient of days. And then to him, that would be the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting kingdom. And so first we have this ancient of days, the one who sits on the throne of heaven that's already been described as God. The most accurate description, I believe, in the Old Testament uh, of God's sovereign power in heaven is the Ancient of Days. And now notice what is assigned to the Son of Man, who is obviously not the Ancient of Days in this passage. There are two individual personages that are in view here. To him, the Son of Man, given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So it's an everlasting kingdom that lasts throughout all of the time that man is on this earth. Nothing can destroy it. It it is eternal in that sense. And so here we have this vision of the one who's like a son of man. As you turn to the Gospels, and it almost doesn't matter where you go, in the Gospels, the Son of Man, this title is used 81 times, almost exclusively by Jesus to describe himself. He, he is the one that chiefly uses this title. And, and as, you, as you think about who the Lord is, he's actually described as the Son of in three other ways. And it's important for us to look at those as well. Because Jesus is not just the Son of Man. In Scripture, he's also the Son of God. Amen? He, he is the son who was given in Isaiah 9, 6. He's the son of God. He's God's own son. He's God's only son. And so Jesus is also referred to as the son of God. He's also the son of David, which refers to his earthly throne. As we saw this morning, if you look at the end of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Jesus is still one day going to sit on David's throne. David's throne in the time of Jesus did not exist. Rome was in power. Before that, an Ijumean king, King Herod, was actually the ruler of the region. The Romans sent in Pontius Pilate as the governor. And so David's throne was unoccupied when Jesus was here the first time. So if the scriptures tell us 
that Jesus will occupy David's throne, Messiah will occupy that throne, then it has to still be talking future because that throne hasn't existed still to this day. And yet scripture is very clear that he is the son of David or his eternal kingship, if you will, is in view there. And so as Jesus comes on the scene, as his incarnation takes place, as, as we look at Christmas season, uh, for that time when we see the Christ child come, he comes exactly as Isaiah 9, 6 says. He is the child who is born. He's born to Mary and Joseph. But he is also the son who is given. He is both things. And so in that role, he takes on all of the kingly characteristics, the earthly characteristics of a human being while retaining every bit of the characteristics of God. And so he is still God's son, and yet he is rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the eternal king of heaven, but he's also Lord of the earth. He, he is 100%, in other words, God, and he is also 100% man. Now, when we think of that, that's hard for us to imagine because if you're 100% one thing, it makes it impossible for you to be 100% something else. But that's because we're not God. And so God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, amen, God with people, God with man, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And so he fulfills both parts of the prophetic word that's spoken about who he is in the Old Testament. He also fulfills the perfect role of the kinsman redeemer. So this picture that we have in the book of Leviticus, this near kinsman that would come alongside, and here's the reason this is important. As humankind, we are actually all near kinsmen. Amen? Here's why. We're all humans. We're all related one to another. We, we all have, in essence, the same uh, human characteristics. We are three-part humans. We have a mind. We have an eternal soul. We have a physical body. But interestingly enough, in the book of Leviticus... There's this unique person that's described as the kinsman redeemer, the one who would come alongside and redeem back someone else. So if Jesus is also the son of man, not just God's son, his incarnation makes it possible for him to also be the kinsman redeemer, the one who is exactly like us and therefore able to buy us back. Because the kinsman redeemer's position could only come from someone who was near of kin. That means you had to be related to them. Jesus is related to every last one of us because the genealogies that you find in Matthew and Luke's gospel don't just trace him back on the kingly line, trace him all the way back to Adam. He's related to Adam. So consequently, Jesus is related to every last one of us Except that he was not born with Adam's sin. So as the kinsman redeemer, he can redeem back the land. That was part of what the redeemer had to do. 
He had to take care of the debts that were owed by his brother. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Jesus paid for our sin. We had mortgaged our land, so to speak. We also mortgaged our lives, by the way. The second thing, what happens to you under sin? You're a slave to sin, amen? You're a voluntary slave to that sin, I might add. You're a willing participant in sinful behavior. And so part of what a kinsman redeemer had to do was to buy you back out of the slavery. For everyone who sins is a slave to sin, scripture says. So Jesus, as our near kinsman, as the son of man, the one who's close to us, but not like us because he is also God, can also buy us back out of the slavery of sin. And thirdly, he becomes the avenger of our blood. Because it would have taken our blood to pay for our sin. So he avenges the blood that's been required of us by the world, pays that debt. He, he buys us back from the fact that we would have been found in league with the murderer, Satan, amen? And so he pays that part of the debt for us, buys us back from it. The only way Jesus can meet the role of the kinsman redeemer is he has to be a man. But he can't do it unless he is also God. Because we can't pay our own price. It takes perfection for our imperfection for that sacrifice to be made. And so this role of the Son of Man is extremely important to us in our salvation experience that Jesus himself uniquely and only can fulfill. Jesus called himself this name. And I want you to look at this. I put up some of the passages so that you'll, you can mark them and know them. And Jesus obviously took this particular passage because he quotes from it directly. Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 24, remember what he's writing. This is the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus's commentary on the very last days. So Matthew 24, 25, 26. The context here is asked, well, what will it be like when the Son of Man comes? Jesus answers that. He says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man. This is Matthew 24, 30. Coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is Jesus referring back to the title. He says, the Son of Man. Why do you think he says the Son of Man? Because there's only one. It's singular. It's a title. It's like saying the Lord God. There's only one. He happens to dwell in three persons in eternity. But there's one Lord God. This is the Son of Man. In Matthew 26, verse 64, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So if there is a Son of Man and he's sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, which is obviously God the Father, that means there's at least two persons in the Godhead. Amen? Because you can't have one sitting next to the other unless they have their two individuals. 
and coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark's gospel records for us in chapter 13, verse 26. And at that time, these are all Jesus speaking, by the way. At that time, the very last days, the time that we've already looked at, we've begun our journey into the last days, and we'll continue that as we move through this book and also through the book of Isaiah. That at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so this is this picture of Jesus, fully God, fully man, fulfilling the roles that we find throughout the book of Revelation primarily in the very last days. And so he's obviously referring to somebody very unique. We have lots of names for the Son of Man, amen? The Son of Man is also the Lord of Lords. He's also the King of Glory, He's also the great I am. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the redeemer. He's all these things. But for us personally as humankind, the most important name he has is the son of man. It identifies him directly with us. Because he can't save us unless he's one of us. He can reach down in heaven and do a miracle. But if he's going to redeem us back from sin... He's got to be one of us. The Bible is extremely clear on this fact. I want you to notice something in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot be given all authority from heaven and earth. But interestingly, he's given authority on heaven and earth, where do you think it came from? There's a clue in this passage. It's the Ancient of Days. God the Father has handed Christ the Son the ability to judge the entire world. And he's done so based on the merits of what we've done with the gospel. He's given authority to his Son to judge. When you get to heaven... When you stand before the Lord of glory, there's going to be exactly one entrance exam to heaven. Have you believed on my name? Of course, God's already going to know because your name's going to be in the book of life. It isn't going to be, did you do good things? It isn't, it isn't going to be, did you give money to the church? And were you faithful in the mission field? Did you write books about me? It isn't even going to be, did you evangelize or not? It's going to be, Did you believe on the only begotten Son of God? Because all judgment is given to Jesus. That's the entrance exam to heaven. It is the Son of Man that's going to be standing there in all of his glory and splendor, and he's still going to bear the scars of Calvary's cross when he does that. They're inscribed on his hands. The scriptures remind us. So the Lord doesn't take authority, doesn't usurp authority, doesn't give it to himself. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the one that Hebrews chapter 1 speaks about, is the one from where that comes. And so he is, in that sense, God. There are four proofs in our passage that we've read thus far. Look at them. They're in verses 13 and 14. He was given what God will never give away to any normal man. The Son of Man was given what God will never give 
to an ordinary man. None of you are ever going to get this. No matter how good you are, no matter how long you live in eternity, you are never going to be handed all authority. You're not going to be handed glory because scripture says God will not share his glory with anyone save himself. And because Christ is God, Christ can share the glory as well. So this one called the son of man gets the glory and the sovereign power of God. He's also in this passage worshiped. Only God is to be worshiped. In fact, the Ten Commandments begin with, thou shalt have no other gods before me, amen? It's the number one thing God said. He said, look, here's where we're going to start. There's one God and three persons, and yet the Son of Man is allowed to be worshiped. He's given an everlasting kingdom. What does the end of Isaiah 9, 6 say? His, his kingdom will have no end. It's eternal. The, the son of man is eternal. And the fourth thing, he'll also be like the one who is the son of man that we've already seen here in the book of Daniel. So he's referring back to, remember that there was a fourth person in the fiery furnace? You remember why it said he was one like the son of man? Because Jesus is now referring to his previous appearance. He's saying, you remember the one like the Son of Man that you saw in the fire? Guess what? That's me. There's only one. John, as he unveils these things in Revelation, it just becomes so monumentally clear. But I want to turn your attention to a passage of Scripture I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. And as, as Jesus unfolds this story, you, you might remember that he himself is engaged in this uh, incredible battle with the, the Sanhedrin, with the Pharisees that were ruling it and governing it in, in Mark chapter 14. And, and he's kind of doing battle with them. And they ask him a question. And for those of you the students of your Bible, you remember what the question is? Are you the Christ? That's the question. This is directly before Jesus is going to go to the cross. And so the question that he is asked is, are you the Christ? Now hear his response. First he says, I am. And he uses the tetragrammaton, I am that I am. In other words, he's saying I'm Yahweh. Just in case they didn't get it. He says to them, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referring to Daniel. This is what got him in trouble. This is why the high priest rent his garment and tore it apart. He's saying, are you kidding me? You're calling yourself the Messiah. We know who the Son of Man is. We know who Yahweh is. You'll see him. The high priest tears his clothes. Look what he says directly after this. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, why do you suppose 
that they wanted to put Jesus to death unless they absolutely believed that he was referring to Daniel's prophecy that the one like the Son of Man would be seen. The answer is, that's exactly why they wanted to kill him. Because they knew what he was saying. This is Messiah. You're calling yourself Messiah. And interestingly enough, when you read John's revelation, the Son of Man has the radiance of God's glory according to the author of Hebrews but there in the book of Revelation we, we see the, the ancient of days again and we see him uh, Jesus ascends into heaven and remember what's said there in the book of Acts is the book of Acts unfolds it says as you have seen him go how did they see him go he was caught up into the clouds of heaven as you have seen him go so you shall see him return what did Daniel say you'll see him return on the clouds of heaven. So these things are all wrapped together in the prophetic picture of not only the first coming, but the second coming. When he comes again. This is what brings into view for us the importance of the rapture. Because all this chaos that's going to happen that we're going to look at that's going to be described in this book that's called the tribulation. That God hasn't appointed his children to wrath but unto salvation that we're saved from because the only other time that Jesus appears in the sky, those who are here get caught up with him there. But in the second coming, we're coming back with him. I believe to some degree the armies of heaven are those clouds. You're going to be part of that incredible, glorious scene. That's why Jesus said, John said, and Daniel alludes to that someday the Son of Man is returning in power and great glory from heaven because Jesus is coming again. Amen? And so now this vision unfolds before us, these visions, these dreams. Verse 15, and we're going to take the rest of the chapter. And Daniel, I was grieved in my spirit with my body. In other words, he's aching. He's, he's feeling this. He's not just seeing it. He's fully engaged in this vision. And the visions of my head troubled me, and I came near to those who stood by and asked him if this was the truth of all of this. And so he told me that it would be made known to me the interpretation of these things. And so he's seen these great beasts. He's seen this incredible image. Daniel has seen more than any other Old Testament saint saw. He's gotten a glimpse of the future like nobody else got as far as the world empires that would come and what would happen during those times. And he's going to give us some details. And I saw those great beasts, which are four, the four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. You see, remember, I told you, don't be worried about this because we know the end of all of this. And so in this incredible picture of this time when this one world ruler is going to raise up and he's, he's going to control literally the whole world. Ultimately, he says, the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom and notice for how long? Forever and ever and ever. Amen? 
So yes, the Antichrist is going to rise. Yes, the world is going to come unhinged. Yes, there are all kinds of crazy things that are going on in our world right now today. And they're going to continue until the Lord takes his church home and finally comes again after this one world ruler rises. But it says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all of the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, which we looked at last time, before which the three fell. So Rome rises, then rises again in this final or fifth kingdom. And that horn, which had an eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. That's why we know that when the Antichrist finally comes, the whole world is actually going to view the Antichrist as the rightful ruler. There's going to be something so spectacular about him. I personally believe that this is not going to be some demonic-looking dude. This is going to be some guy from GQ that probably speaks 10 different languages, more than likely has multiple degrees from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Penn State and you know USC. And he's going to have all the credentials. He's going to have it together. He's going to be greater than any ruler that's ever existed. That ruler is going to finally rise up out of the sea of humanity, as we saw last time. And as as I was watching, the same horn was making war against the saints. So this is how we know that there's going to be a period of time when there will be people saved during the tribulation... They're going to have to battle for their lives. Ultimately, they're going to, most of them, lose their lives for the cause of the gospel. But this one world ruler is going to come unhinged at some point in time and prevailing against them. Until, check this out, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. In other words, the Antichrist rule is absolutely finite. The Lord will judge it. The Lord will end it. And he's going to send Jesus back to make sure that it's all complete. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. I love this. This is like glory on top of glory right here. It's like when you see the world in the position it's in right now and knowing that it's going to get worse. And I don't say that to be morbid. I don't say it to scare anyone. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible does not paint a great picture of the last days. Amen? It isn't like, oh, we're just going to all finally reach world peace in nirvana. No, it's going to be hell on earth. That's what's actually going to happen at the very end. It's going to look like it's getting better. We're going to finally have an amazing global economy. We just had a trade deal announced. We finalized parts of NAFTA the last couple of days. We finalized, I think it was a $150 billion trade deal with China. There's some good things going on. We should rejoice in those things. But they're not going to solve the problems the world has. The world has problems that only the Lord coming back can solve. And until then, the world's going to keep trying to solve these problems with godless means. 
with peace treaties and all those things. And again, those things are wonderful in and of themselves, at least in time. Nobody should be, you know, mongering after war. But the fact of the matter is what the Bible says about the very last days is that people are going to be lovers of themselves more than God. That things are going to be as they were in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. You see Jesus used that name there too. So it is really important for us to not get lulled to sleep, family. We need to be wise. We need to be watchful. We need to be on the walls of our Jerusalem going, that's dangerous. One of the reasons that the church needs to have a voice in, in all things. We, we want Christian rulers. We want Christian police officers. We want Christian military. We want Christian doctors and lawyers. We want Christians occupying every part of our society. Because the only hope that's going to last is that hope which is based in Jesus Christ and nothing less than his righteousness. That's what will last. But the world's going to settle for something else. We need to know that. It should not surprise any of you in this room. If you've come to this church for six months and you've read your Bible, it should not surprise any of you that the world is moving, moving rapidly towards massive globalism to where we're all going to be linked together. It shouldn't surprise you that there are wars and rumors of wars because Jesus himself said that that would be the case during the end times. You shouldn't be surprised that nation will rise against nation. Jesus said that would be the case in the last days. You shouldn't be surprised that people hate one another Jesus said that's what it would be like in the last days. But then you look at this, and then it came time for the saints to possess the kingdom. Amen? That's us. And thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and trample it and break it to pieces. Notice what it says. The revived Roman Empire, the final kingdom, part of the old Roman Empire, which comes up again, that is spoken of as the leader of which being this horn that speaks pompous words will control the entire earth. The reason this is important is because when you look at the book of Revelation, this is not some little Middle East conflict. This is not something that happens, you know, maybe kind of in part of Israel and Syria and a little bit of northern Africa, Egypt, and kind of some of Iraq and a little bit of Turkey. No, it's a global conflict. We get a picture of that right here. It's going to devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it to pieces. The ten horns are the ten kings who will arise from that final kingdom and the other shall arise after them, and other, excuse me, and shall be different from the first ones, and subdue the three kings. He'll speak pompous words. In other words, this kind of condensed leadership of this ten-nation confederation coming out of the old Roman Empire rises up and speaks these pompous words against the Most High God. And we know that the book of Revelation declares to us he's going to actually demand to be worshipped. 
He's going to establish himself as God. And shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And shall intend to change the times and the law. When the Antichrist finally rises, he's going to govern everything. I don't know what he's going to use as far. Maybe he's going back to the Babylonian calendar or something. I have no idea. We're in a leap year this year. So every seven years, we have that extra day. Maybe he's going to make up his own. I don't know. But he's going to change the times. He's going to change the laws. He's going to make global laws. Right now, we happen to have a constitution that protects us here in this country. As crazy as it is right now and all the wacky things that are going on, we still have the best form of government that's ever existed on planet Earth. And if you don't believe that, just travel anywhere else, including Europe and Sweden, all these places that people brag about. Go and ask yourself if you want to have 44% taxes. That's what they pay in Sweden. 44%. You get to keep about half of your paycheck. The rest of it goes to the government. And people talk about, well, you know, U.S., blah, 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 blah. Go anywhere else. And I guarantee you, if you live there for a month, you're going to be coming back and kissing the dirt of the United States of America. I guarantee it. Now, you may find some place that you think is more beautiful. Hard to not fall in love with the Swiss Alps. You drive through, and it's like you expect Heidi to come, you know, running down the hillside, or Julie Andrews, and the hills are alive. You know, I mean, all of us have these little weird things that happen in our minds. It's like, wow, if I could just live there. No, there's going to be a global conflict. It's going to take over the entire world, and this guy's going to solve the problems at first. The saints will be given into his hand for a time and times, and that second times actually means two. For a time and two times and half a time. That would be three and a half, by the way, just some just stellar mathematics going on right there. But the court shall be seated. What court? A court of heaven. He's going to have his time. He's going to have three and a half years before he turns south and starts to destroy the world. But for three and a half years, he's going to absolutely rule the earth with an iron fist. It's going to come unhinged. But the court seated, and they, that would be the court, shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Satan's had a pretty long run, hasn't he? He began in a tree in the garden. It's when he first showed himself. And he's been behind every murder ever since, every lie ever since, every war ever since, every crime, every vile thing that's ever done behind it has been Satan himself. And in this final little scenario, his mouthpiece, known as the Antichrist, is going to be speaking these things directly against God and against God's people. It's mind-boggling. I was reading an article yesterday that millennials are fleeing organized religion of all kind, and the main place they're fleeing to is basically humanism through the love of human achievement 
the power of self, the destructive nature, in essence, of extreme narcissism. Your Bible says people will be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God in the last days. These things are happening right before our eyes. I'm not telling you I know when the church is going to be raptured, but I am telling you we're a whole lot closer than we were in the 1800s. I'm telling you the sinful things that existed then and the sinful things that exist today are very different. The expressions of them, the depth of them, the amount of trouble that people are constantly into. These types of things. We're legitimately thinking about doing what Switzerland has already done. If you travel to Switzerland, you can go to specific places. They're thinking about doing this in Amsterdam, by the way, of just designating places you can go and shoot up heroin. You know, why fight it? I mean, they're going to do it anyway. People are destroying their lives. And we're trying to make laws to make it okay. Now imagine that the Antichrist comes on the scene. Yeah, you know, those rotten Christians, it's a good thing they're all gone. Now we can live the way we were intended to actually live. Completely debauched. Absolutely no restraints on anything. But the court is seated. They'll take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of of the wholeness under heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high God, and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. And Daniel says, this is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. Yeah, they trouble me still. When I read Daniel's account... I can't help but get troubled a little bit. And if I, if I didn't have personal faith in Jesus Christ, I'd be troubled a lot. I wouldn't be troubled a little. But because I know how much God loves humankind, I know he's doing everything he can at this very moment to save as many people as will believe from what is coming. Because it's coming. And my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart Why would Daniel keep this in his heart? Because it is in a long, 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 long way in the future. John would reveal many of these things as he sat there in a cave in AD 90 on the island of Patmos. He would receive some additional pieces. Paul would receive some additional pieces. As he wrote in AD 64, as he writes to the church at Thessalonica, But Daniel wasn't a casual observer here. He'd watched these kingdoms rise. He'd seen and heard of the the Babylonians. He's watching the Medes, the Grecians, the Romans are coming. He knows as surely as he saw those nations rise, those kingdoms rise, that this final kingdom is going to come. And that one day Christ's kingdom would actually be established on this earth. And so he mentions this beast that rises up again. And if you read the book of Revelation, and again, you can go online. We did a full study all the way through the book. We may get to it again in our journey through scriptures. But 
very specifically when you look at the, the part of the book of Revelation, which is chapter 6, all the way through verse 3 of chapter 20, is describing this period of time that this ruler rules. That this particular pompous speaking individual has his rule and reign. It's the seven bowls, it's the seven trumpets, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's all these incredible things that seem so far-fetched. But if you look back to what Daniel said, he said the whole earth is going to suffer under his rule. It's going to be crushed under his feet. And while we can't say for sure, you know, that we know that this is going to be specifically a group of people and out of it, which I personally believe it, it is going to be some confederation of nations that will rise primarily out of Europe, likely having to do with the EU and the UN and world court, world banks, all these things gathering together. There's going to be somebody that's going to make this come together in a way that it becomes the single governing entity of the entire world. And we're pressing towards that so quickly now, it's crazy. You look at what we're negotiating, even in our you know, our economic treaties that we're trying to make with other nations. They're not primarily for the benefit of the United States. That's the reason that we're in such debt to China. We, we kind of sold the farm. We said, we want peace. You know, we, we, we don't want you getting mad at us. So we'll just have this $2.5 trillion trade deficit instead. Well, the Bible says that the borrower is always slave to the lender. And if we've borrowed money from somebody, they actually control us. What do we have going on right now? We're having to negotiate those types of, those types of deals. And the same thing is true all over the world. And so this last world ruler, as he comes on the scene, he's gonna have this time where he's gonna speak these pompous things but he's going to get his revelation 7 verse 9 says and i looked and after this there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the lamb and then a little further down in verse 14 we are told who those people are these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, have washed their robes and been made white in the blood of the Lamb. The same righteousness that applies to each one of you as you commit your life to Christ, I am clothed, I'm cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. My bloody old life is made white. That's why Isaiah said, though my sins be as scarlet, they'll be made white as wool. And so this whole picture is a picture that's still yet future to us tonight. Mankind is going to have one final rebellion. That, that, that 70th week that we'll get to in chapter 9. That, that time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation, which is really two parts. The last three and a half years being the great tribulation. The first three and a half years being this time of peace where this world ruler comes on the scene. 
and solves this global problem because Israel has been attacked by Russia primarily with all the Arab nations that surround it. They're going to take over Israel, and this guy comes on the scene and makes a peace treaty with Israel and even allows Israel to rebuild the temple. And then in the middle of the week, we're going to find out he breaks that treaty and he reveals himself. He says, oh, by the way, thanks for building the temple. Worship me. You see some crazy days still lie ahead as mankind launches this one final rebellion against God. Right now, man is pretty selective in how he rebels against God. That's interesting to me. We have uh, multiple facilities down in El Salvador, and most of you know that El Salvador is not exactly a safe place as far as our State Department's concerned. If you go on the State Department website, look for the most dangerous places on the planet. El Salvador is, I think, three right now. The other place that we like to go is Colombia. I think that's number two. So we just like going to dangerous places. Not because we're crazy. But there it's interesting. Because in our facility that's in this little tiny community of San Martin, it's actually in the midst of an area that's controlled by MS-13 which if you know about MS-13, they're not exactly friendly. They have a tendency to rule with a very heavy hand. But oddly enough, if they think they can use God, then they use God. And because we happen to have a soccer field, and because we brought electric power into that area, MS-13 actually takes pretty good care of us. Because they think that they have a deal worked out with the God people. Now it's going to work for a while. And then it's not going to work anymore. And their true colors are going to come out. Who they really are is going to be exposed. And when the Antichrist finally rises... Daniel says as they're waging war against the saints, as Revelation says, is this great multitude that no one could count gets destroyed by them. This one who's ruling at that time is going to be everything that the Bible says he's going to be. He's going to be the stern-faced king. He's going to be the ruler who is to come. He's going to be the king who does what he pleases. He's going to rule the world. And during that time, Daniel's final week that we'll get to in chapter 9, the Jewish people are going to finally come to that place where, where they understand who Jesus is and come to faith in Messiah. And they're in chapter 7. Probably most of you know it, even if you don't think you know it. And there out of all 12 tribes comes 12,000. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are leashed on the, unleashed on the earth. They've come to faith because they watched the Antichrist rise. They watched him make a peace treaty. They're going to be wandering around going, you know, I think I heard of this somewhere. It's in the Bible. And they're going to go, it's true. There's the ruler. This is the world. 
here's what's happening, and they are going to be the staunchest defenders of the gospel, so much so that most of them will be killed, if not all. And so Revelation paints this picture of the fury of the Antichrist even coming against these 144,000 that that have come to faith in Messiah. They've mourned the one whom they pierced. In Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll get there very shortly, by the way, in this worthless vineyard, Isaiah gives a picture of this time as well. And he says, of that time, woe to those who call evil good. Anybody think that maybe that might kind of be what's going on in our world today? And call good evil. Oh, you can stand on the street corner, put up an easy up, and you could run 24 hour a day on a loudspeaker explicatives. Nobody's going to bother you. But if you share the gospel with people, you better have a permit for a religious event or they're going to tell you to move. And that's not me coming against law enforcement. That's the truth. Evil is being called good, and good is being called evil even right now. Isaiah further goes on to say, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the Antichrist. He's going to reverse the whole world's thinking Today, we we look at what's going on and and what's happening in our world. It's pretty clear we're on our way to being set up to where these things would take nothing for them to become the way the world thinks. What's the one thing holding all of this back? Be all you. It'd be the church. It'd be the Holy Spirit in the world that is primarily visible in the church, by the way. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit resides inside of every single believer and the Holy Spirit is in this world and when the Holy Spirit, the evidence and the work of is snatched out via the rapture, how much trouble do you think it's going to be for the Antichrist to go, you know, isn't it a good thing they're all gone? Because they were against homosexual marriage. They were against gay rights. They've been against, you know, legalizing marijuana. They're against bars. They're against strip clubs. They've been saying all kinds of heinous things and keeping people from really enjoying life. And now imagine the church is gone and you have a ruler that steps into that existential crisis and says, I've got a plan. Steps into that ready for humanism world and says, I can fix this. Steps into that place to where we're all concerned about situational ethics. And if I say it's good, it's good. And here comes this guy and he says, you know what? We're just all going to do our own thing. And it's gonna, everything's going to be okay. And then all of a sudden, eh, you know what? We could use a few less people. Maybe we need to call the herd a little bit. You know, we laugh about movies like The Hunger Games, but they're not that far from the truth. We just do it in a little more sanitized way right now. It's called genocide, infanticide. Now imagine there's no restraint. 
well, you know, I'm not really good with abortion, but, you know, as long as it's before the second trimester, you know, most people that don't know the Lord, they're okay. But we're reaching the place where the baby can be delivered and then we decide whether we want to keep it or not. And that's not me guessing. That's what's going on in our world right now. We're also deciding, well, you know, Pops is a little old. After all, you got to feed him. You know, just give him a little, you know, propofol or something. A little more than he needs and he'll just go night-night. After all, he's got no soul. It's all just about what we experience here. And he's keeping you from experiencing the very best. He's costing you money. And you imagine, what is keeping that from happening right now? It is primarily a Judeo-Christian worldview that values all human life. That's not saying we're the only ones that think that way, but we are the only ones who have a system of laws that guarantees the value of every human being. All Americans are endued with the right to live, the right to life. It's guaranteed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Amen? Life is the first one. You know where that came from? The Bible. Now imagine you have a ruler who doesn't think that way. And he governs the whole world. There are some applications that become unavoidable here. But they're also good. Because even though this person is going to rise and even though things are going to get bad and the church is going to be taken home and the world's going to come unhinged, God has an answer. Amen? It isn't going to end that way. The court will sit and his power will be taken away and destroyed completely forever. Amen? I can't wait for that day because I can tell you his power is not destroyed right now. His power is very much available and, and at work in our world. I, I talk to people constantly. It's like, well, why do you think that way? Well, you know, just nothing matters. I don't have purpose. I don't have meaning. There is no heaven. There is no hell. Why does it even matter? You know, sometimes people look at their own lives and their despair comes from the fact that they think this is all there is. This is it. And I didn't get anything. You wonder why people take their lives. If your view of eternity is there isn't one, then this is all there is. No wonder people are depressed. No wonder they take advantage of other people. That's the lie of the devil. That you don't matter. That there is no God. Marx knew that. Stalin knew that. That's why the first thing to go was God. Get God out of everything. The travesty of our own nation, since we outlawed prayer in school in 1968, has been a constant decrease in morality. It's constant. 
And it's getting worse every single day. But it's not going to last forever. And I praise God that he's put an end. There, there is a period on this period of time. The Lord's power, the Christ's power, Jesus' power, the Son of Man's power will absolutely last forever. How are you affected when you ponder this? What do you think about? I shared with everybody, I think it was second service. I don't know that I shared it at all the services. You know, there are times when I look at humanity that's really hard. I sit there and I think, it's like, Lord, they don't know you. What are we going to do about this? Revelation chapter 19 says this. I'll wrap this up. And now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war you see the antichrist is going to think he's one the devil is going to think he's one the world is going to look like they won and his eyes were like the flame of fire and on his head were many crowns many diadema diadems kingly crowns not just a crown a whole bunch of kingly crowns because he's the Lord of heaven and earth and everything there is. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. This is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus in heaven. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I don't know how many horses this is. All I know is there must be some really big stables in heaven. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And this is speaking of the time after the Antichrist has revealed himself and done all of his dastardly deeds. That he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has his robe, and on his thigh a name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. Jesus is coming again. And he is going to fix all these things. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility as the recipients of God's grace to be very busy about our Father's business in these days, which I personally believe are the last days. And when I say that, I am not telling you 
that I think the church is going to be raptured tonight, but I am telling you the church could be raptured tonight. There's nothing left prophetically that has to happen. There's nothing holding the church from being raptured right now. Here's the crazy thing. We know what's coming next. And we know that once these things begin, they are going to come to fruition. They will go down exactly as the Bible says they will. So if we're seeing a majority of these things already unveiled in our world today, and we're heading towards globalism, we're heading towards a one-world government, a one-world monetary system, and a one-world religion, then it'd be a really good time for us to tell people about Jesus. Because I don't want to see anybody left behind. And yet the Bible says two will be standing at a mill grinding and one will be taken and one will be left. You don't want that to be anybody you know. The only answer to this is Jesus. He's the rider on that horse. He alone, whose very name means God is salvation. That's what Jesus means, Yahushua. God is salvation. That's what he wants for us. He is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. He is the son of David. All these things he is. And he's done all this to reveal himself to us so there can be no contest about who he is. Nobody who reads the entirety of scripture and realize all that's been said about Jesus can go, nah, I'm not sure he's been here yet. Or, you know, maybe it's just, um, it's symbolic. A countless thousands of pieces of information that we have that were written over a time span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors comprising 66 books that not one thing that's been specifically spoken about Messiah, if it had to do with his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, every last one of them came true. Then I have no reason to believe that that son of man isn't going to do exactly what he said he's going to do, and that's he's coming on the clouds of heaven. So church, let's be busy. Let's make sure that we represent well, right? Now we, we wear Dodger blue proudly. We wear purple and gold proudly. In my case, I'm one of the three people in the church that wear the Clippers colors proudly. We, we represent, right? We need to represent the king. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Going to have some pastors up front, prayer team up front. Maybe you don't know the king. Maybe you're not ready to see the king. Maybe you're not ready to be caught up to heaven. I pray you are. But maybe, maybe there's someone here tonight that isn't. You can square that away before you leave. You don't have to be worried about this stuff. You can join with the rest of us because I, I, we're coming back with Jesus from heaven. Amen? I don't plan to be here when all this stuff unfolds. 
But if that's you, you can, you can do business with the Lord tonight. He just simply asks that you believe on his name and you'll be saved. And for the rest of us, empowered. Look, let's just, let's just go out there and give Jesus what we got. Let him use us for his glory. Father, thank you for your goodness, your kindness to us. Lord, for the power of your word. Lord, to realize that you, the son of man, you, Jesus, said you are coming again on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You did not come in great glory the first time. You came in total humility the first time. Your life was, was snuffed out at Calvary's cross. You gave it up. You said, I, I relinquish my spirit. And you returned to heaven. So the only conclusion we can come to is that you have to be coming again. Because you didn't come on the clouds. You came in a manger. You were born to Mary and Joseph in a little town of Bethlehem. But there's a day coming when you're coming back with the armies of heaven. And so prepare us for that time. Ignite our lives for your purposes. Help us to represent well. God, would we wear your colors wherever we go. Lord, I pray for those that maybe are struggling with you tonight. Maybe they haven't surrendered to your lordship. Would you speak into their lives the truth of your love for them? That what you ask of us, you empower us to do. What you want of us is for our own good that you can use us, Lord, for your glory. And so bless us to that end. Speak to us, Lord, throughout this week as we prepare to celebrate a Jesus, you're coming that first time to the little town of Bethlehem, that hole-in-the-wall community south of Jerusalem, Lord, on the ridge, just beyond eyesight of the great temple. God, prepare us this week for celebration of the first arrival of the king so that we might be ready to celebrate the second arrival of the king as well. In Jesus' name, amen.